Um, <clears throat> I told Melissa uh, after the after we sang Tis So Sweet in the first service, I don't know about you guys, but I needed that this morning. Um, the, the, one, the one lyric in there that's a little difficult to sing is, I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, past tense. Anybody have a challenge with that one? Uh, I'm so glad you're teaching me to trust you. If we would make that adjustment next time. No, I'm kidding. Um, what, a, what a great song. Um, Hi, uh, my name is Lucas. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayview Glen. Still, uh, some of you, some of you uh, wondered if I was if I was gone for good. Uh, I, I almost did actually uh, stay because uh, the 25th Christmas Day, Amy and I, after our wonderful Christmas Eve services, Amy and I uh, flew back to Phoenix. And I preached at my former church uh, the 26th and 27th Saturday and Sunday, and then on the 28th we went to Hawaii with my family for seven days. And so uh, I love you, uh, but, but I almost didn't come back. Um, so we were there for a week. My dad retired uh, this last year, and so my parents just wanted to give us a gift. So my brother and his wife, uh, they have four boys, biological boys, and they've got an adopted little girl. They went, my sister went, Amy and I, Kaya went, and my parents, uh, the fact that my brother has five kids means he's absolutely certifiably crazy, but... Uh, but uh, we had a blast. We had a great time on the beach and then came back to Phoenix for three or four days and then, uh, and then got back here uh, this last week. Uh, but I was, I was really excited to be back. You know, growing up, my, my family, we would go out for a day and, you know, we would go to maybe a theme park for the day, Disneyland for the day, or we, you know, we'd go, you know, hang out and do a ball game or something. And, and towards the end of the day, my, my dad's attitude would begin to degenerate. Dads, do you know what I'm talking about? Like towards the end of the day, you've been hanging with your kids and, and you just start to land the plane, you know, a little bit. And I would ask my dad, dad, are you angry? He's like, no, no, I'm not angry. You know, dad, are you upset? Are you, you know, I'm not, you know, like, well, what's going on? And he, and he would say this, and I love this. I've just about had all the fun I can stand. Um, <laughs> so by the time we got to the end of our break, our, our holiday, I had had just about all the fun I could stand. And so I'm thrilled to be back here with you all where there is no fun to be had at all. <laughs> um, even having, you know what, let, 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 let's do this. Let's, let's just pray real quick. I know, I know Melissa already did that, but let's pray. Just invite God to speak to us as we open his word. God, um, here we are again, Sunday morning. And when we say speak to us through your word, what we mean by that, God, is maybe not new knowledge today, Maybe a new experience of you. The comfort, the exhortation, the conviction, the renewal, the reminder that we might need. Some of this that we're going to talk about today is, is basic, it's foundational, it's, it's, it's uh, familiar for so many of us. May it come alive in a fresh way. Spirit of God, may you guide us into all truth as we uh, do our best to faithfully and diligently study your word. We invite you to speak in Christ's name. Amen. Um, at the end of last year, as we kind of went through the holiday season, some of the pastoral staff, Carmen Berry, our executive pastor, and then uh, Dave Lewis, our community pastor, and I began to have these conversations about what topics we might tackle in the coming year. And we had a couple of things slotted. We've got some great things coming this year, by the way. Uh, but what we didn't know was kind of how we wanted to kick off the year and what we wanted to talk about as we launched into 2016. And one of the things that kind of came to the surface in those conversations was this 
uh, question of theology, and I want to tell you why. Uh, theology it might sound like a complicated word. It might sound like something that uh, you know is, is for scholars in the university, but it's really not. Theology is a very, very simple word because it comes from two Greek words, the first being theos, which means God, and the second being logos, which means words. So simply put, theology is words of God or words about God or God words. It's not complicated. It sounds highfalutin and it sounds really intellectual and all that stuff, but theology is just words about God and Christianity has long recognized that theology is a critical part of life and faith. In the 4th century, a man named Augustine underscored the value of theology and he said that theology is rational discussion respecting the deity. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas said this, and and I love this, theology is the queen of all sciences, and all other disciplines are her handmaidens. I love that. (laughs) Augustus Strong said this, that theology is the science of God and and the relations between God and the universe. Charles Ryrie said that theology is thinking about God and expressing those those thoughts in some way. In other words, theology is words about God. And from the early church until modern Christian scholarship, there's been a devotion to theology because right belief about God tends to produce right action. Right belief about God tends to, not always, but tends to produce right action, right behavior, uh, right responses to things, right worldviews, right perspectives. And so right theology, right words about God, a right understanding of who God is, is foundational for Christian life and faith. I was privileged to do a memorial service yesterday, participate by reading scripture of a man named George Arnold. George Arnold uh, passed away at the end of 2015. We had a memorial service for him yesterday here at our church. He was a faithful member of our church for a very long time, a a man of prayer, an unbelievable human being that walked closely with his God. His son, uh, Don, shared a story about his dad yesterday during the memorial service and said even towards the end of his dad's life, he would call his dad even uh, weeks, even days before he passed, cancer ravaging his body, four crushed vertebrae, confined to a bed in constant pain, and he would say to his dad, Dad, how you doing? Well, the answer is clear, right? The answer is obvious. I'm not doing Great, I'm actually doing very poorly. But that's not how George would answer. George would say this, I'm doing fine, Don, how about you? And Don added this about his dad, and this was, this was unbelievable to me. He would say, and you know what? He meant it. I'm doing fine, and he meant it. I will tell you why he meant it. I will tell you why he had that right perspective, that deep-rooted, godly, foundational thing that caused him to see life in a new way because he had right theology, because he knew his God, because the things that he believed about God were accurate. The experience he had with God was real. It shifted the way he saw the world radically. One of my friends, even a very young man, buried his daughter when she was 38 days old. I was there. And the thing that might have fractured me or or you, the thing that that might have caused us to come off the rails did not cause him to do that. The grief that he experienced deep down in his heart was really unspeakable. 
But he was able to stay the course. He was able to continue to see the world for what it truly was. He continued to walk with God. Why? Because he was devoted to theology. Words about God. And not just knowing them, but walking them and experiencing them. In our congregation right now, we've got people who have recently lost parents or spouses or even losing them now. Marriages that are surviving difficult times. People that are enduring financial difficulty that isn't their fault. And those individuals have rooted themselves deeply in right theology and has given them the opportunity and ability to endure those things. But theology isn't about just belief, because just because you have belief or just because you have faith in something doesn't mean you're going to be able to endure anything or make right decisions, is it? Like, you might believe that the light is green, but if the light is red, you're in trouble, right? So belief doesn't really get you anywhere. It's got to be belief in the right thing, belief in the God that actually exists, and what that means is that we've got to do the rigorous work of theology in, in order to ensure that our, that our theology is not twisted. Because just a little twist, just a little change, even if it's just a matter of a few degrees, can have radical and far-reaching negative consequences down the road, even if we don't realize it at the time. I read a story one time of a jet in 1979, 257 people on board that took off New Zealand, headed from New Zealand, headed to a sightseeing trip in Antarctica. Why anyone would go on a sightseeing trip in Antarctica, I'll never know. Uh, put your head in your refrigerator. I mean, that's, that's about it. That's Antarctica, right? And unknown to the pilots, someone had modified their flight coordinates by just two degrees. And so that error of just two degrees placed them 45 kilometers off course from where they intended. And as they approached Antarctica, the pilots descended to give the passengers a better view of the landscape. And although both pilots were experienced, neither of them had been on this particular flight before. So they had no way of knowing that the incorrect flight coordinates by two degrees had put them directly in the path of an active volcano called Mount Erebus, 3,700 meters up off the ground. So as the pilots descended, the white of the snow and ice from the volcano blended with the white of the clouds, making it appear as though they were flying over flat ground. And by the time the instrument sounded the warning, it was too late. The passenger jet crashed into the side of the volcano and all 257 people were killed. It was a tragedy and was devastating, but it could have been avoided. It started with an error of just two degrees. In the same way, when our thinking about God is off by just a couple degrees, even if it's just a couple degrees, it can have disastrous consequences down the road. There are lots of examples in Scripture about where thinking about God that's off by just a couple degrees can have disastrous consequences. Look up here on the screen. Here's one. It's Genesis 3, verse 1. It reads this way. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, is this what God actually said? No. 
God said, you can't eat of that tree, but the serpent takes God's words and twists them just a little bit. Now, the serpent is crafty because he doesn't replace theology with something that's radically different than what the woman already knew. He takes God's words and twists them by just a couple degrees, doesn't he? Just a couple degrees. And those couple of degrees had radical negative consequences for the woman down the road. This is why Peter encourages the church in his letter this way. He says, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying that there will be false teachers, but they won't be on the outside preaching something radically different from the truth. They will be among you preaching something that's just a few degrees off. But those few degrees will be destructive down the road. So make sure that you're committed to good, right theology, words about God. Even Christ himself in Matthew 7 warns us, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Why does Jesus warn us this way? Why does Peter underscore that warning? Why does the Bible record over and over and over the disastrous consequences of belief that's off by just a few degrees? Because theology matters. The way you answer that question, who is God, matters. It has an impact. Let's even watch this play out in modernity. Uh, This is going to be an interactive thing this morning, so let me ask you this. If you just observed What's happening in culture across Canada in terms of how people are behaving, in terms of you know, marriage and divorce rates, in terms of all that stuff, if you just observe that, what percentage of Canadians would you say believe in God? Are theists that, that believe in God? Come on, talk to me. What percentage? 15? All right, good. What else? 20? It's 80. 80%. According to a recent survey in 2015, 80% of Canadians believe in God. So there is agreement among 80% of Canadians as to this question, is there a God? But among those 80%, you know where you'll find the differences and disagreements? Who is God? What's he like? What's his character like? What are his attributes? And I'm telling you, those disagreements aren't going to be radical. They're going to be off by just a few degrees. And the behavior and responses and worldviews and perspectives of each of those individuals are marked by their answer to this question, who is God? Endeavoring to answer this question is called theology. That's what it's called. So over the next three weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do some theological work. And the way we're going to do it is by filling in the blank on this statement three different times. God is. God is. In two weeks, we're going to do God is gracious. Next week, we're going to do God is sovereign. But today, we're going to start this way. God is triune. God is triune. If you're taking notes today, jot that down for me. God is triune because this is where, be, where, be, where we begin, where be we begin, no, 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 where we begin our study of theology. God is triune. Triune is actually the adjectival form of the noun. The noun is trinity. The noun is Trinity. God is a Trinity. Different scholars, different Christian uh, thinkers have endeavored to define this term, and they do so differently. It's pretty much all the same, but, but they've done so differently over the years. A man named John Feinberg defines the triune God this way. He says, God is one as to essence and three as to persons. John Piper uses this definition. He says, there is one God who eternally exists as three persons. 
A favorite of mine, a guy named Wayne Grudem, writes this. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, all three of those guys are a lot smarter than me. Okay, so what I like to do is simplify things to their basis level. So if you're like those guys, read those guys. Okay, but if you're like me and you want things really simple, here's our simple definition of Trinity this morning. One God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, we're going to look at the biblical evidence. We're going to define it. We're going we're to try to add some clarity to it. But if you're taking notes, God is triune or trinity means this. There is one God. I might, even, I might even add there is exactly one God. Eternally existent in three distinct persons. Those persons are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we say persons here, we don't mean people. We don't mean human beings. We don't mean that three human beings got together and made a superhuman being that we now call God, okay? What we mean by persons is this, that each member of the Trinity, each person within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has a personality, will, affections, choices that operates distinct from the other one, though there is one God. And the way that the Bible defines this for us and begins to unpack this definition of Trinity is really very interesting because instead of just taking all of the information about God being triune in the Trinity and putting it all in one book called like First and Second Trinities or something like that, the Bible kind of unfolds this concept of Trinity from the first page to the last. Now, I want to give you an analogy to kind of understand it, and then we're going to watch it happen in the Bible, okay? Uh, how many of you uh, loved coloring books growing up? You love coloring books? How many of you would admit now that you still love coloring books? A couple of, oh my gosh. There were only like two people in the first service. You guys are so adolescent. Um, I, 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 I love coloring books, so watch this. The Bible, when it defines the concept of Trinity or God being triune, one God, three persons, is a lot like a coloring book. Here's how. It's as if the Old Testament draws the lines of the picture. The Old Testament kind of establishes the framework, kind of establishes the grid. You start to see the picture taking shape, but then the Old Testament is like you and me when we add color. And the Old Testament adds a little red here and a little yellow there and a little orange there. And the Old Testament always colors, in, or the New Testament always colors inside the lines that the Old Testament established. And sometimes in the history of the church, there have been people color outside of the lines. We call them heretics, okay? But the Old Testament establishes the lines. The New Testament adds the color. You with me? Okay, so let's watch it happen. Ready? Let's begin with the Old Testament establishing the framework for Trinitarian theology. The first line that the Old Testament establishes is this. There is one God. There is one God. When it comes to the biblical evidence for monotheism, that is to say there is one and only one God, it's actually difficult to read any more than about 10 verses in the Old Testament before you come to a verse that says there's one God. I mean, they are absolutely all over the place. Isaiah 44, 6, thus says the Lord, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. Zechariah 14, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Psalm 83, 18, that, you may, that we may know that you alone, 
whose name is the Lord, are most high over all the earth. Exodus 20, verse 2, the uh, Ten Commandments, some of you are familiar, begin this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because there's one God. Monotheism, exactly one God. Perhaps the most familiar refrain in all of the nation of Israel would have been this from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, say it with me, one. The Lord is one. There is exactly one God. Now, you are probably not shocked. Oh my gosh, the Old Testament affirms one God? I am, I am surprised. I thought it was a polytheistic book. I thought there were many gods. You're probably not surprised to find that out. But what you might be surprised to find out is what the Old Testament also does is it begins to draw a second line called plurality within the Godhead. Not polytheism, but plurality within the Godhead, within that one God. And I want to show you three ways. There's a lot of examples, but I want to show you three that are just absolutely fascinating to me of how the Old Testament begins to establish this grid. The first is with this word Elohim. Elohim, have you heard this word for God before? It's a Hebrew word for God, okay? This word Elohim is plural, the singular form of that verb is Eloah, or of that noun, sorry, is Eloah. The plural form is Elohim. The, New or the Old Testament uses the plural form of that word over and over again to refer to one God. Plural noun referring to one God. Interesting, right? Even more interesting to me is this, that the vast majority of times when the word Elohim is paired with a verb, it's a plural noun paired with a singular verb. Isn't that weird? Plural noun paired with a singular verb. I want to give you an example of how this, how this would work in English if we were to read something like this in English so you understand how odd it is. Elohim plus a singular verb would be like saying we am. Isn't that a little weird? We am, not I am, not we are, but we am. Like if you heard someone say we am, you would think one of two things. One, they do not have a command of the English language. They don't know how to conjugate verbs, right? Or you would think they're doing it on purpose in order to prove a point. Now, the authors of the Old Testament were not stupid people. They had a command over the Hebrew language. On top of that, we believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament is inspired of God. God is not a dumb God. He did not do this on accident. Neither did the authors of the Old Testament. It's not because they didn't have a command over the Hebrew language. They did it on purpose in order to establish plurality within the Godhead, but continue to affirm one God. Interesting, isn't it? The, the second thing is that, the, is that uh, the Old Testament begins to establish this concept of the Messiah, of the Messiah, an anointed one, a sent one of God, a redeemer, which would end up becoming the uh, Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament, at least that's what we believe, and uh, the, the Christ figure. But the Old Testament is just start to, just this framework of a Messiah. We, we don't know Jesus yet, that hadn't come along yet, but the Old Testament begins to establish this framework, and the Messiah is referred to in a very odd way because the Messiah is called God but also is called distinct from God. 
simultaneously the same as God, but also separate from God. This happens over and over in the Old Testament, and there are a whole lot of examples. I want to point to just one that we would have read during this last Christmas season. You ready to hear how the Messiah in the Old Testament is both God and distinct from God? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. You know that one from the Christmas season? And his name shall be called Mighty God. The child shall be called Mighty God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is affirming two things. Number one, that the Messiah will be called Mighty God. And that the Lord of hosts will accomplish it or or will cause it to happen, accomplish it. In other words, the Messiah is Mighty God, but he's distinct from God because God is causing it to happen. Same thing happens with the Spirit. That's the third kind of thing that we see uh, developing in the Old Testament. The Spirit is referred to as God, but also distinct from God. Again, there's more than one example. Genesis 1, Job 33, Numbers 24 and 27. But specifically, Isaiah 48, 16, the prophet Isaiah tells us that God has sent his Spirit. So in Isaiah 48, as in the rest of the Old Testament, the Spirit is understood as being both identical to and different from God. Both united with, one in the same with, and also distinct from God. So when the, new, or when the Old Testament comes to a close, it's established two critical lines when it comes to Trinitarian theology. Now we'll watch the New Testament color in those lines, but here's our two critical lines that the Old Testament's established. The Old Testament draws these lines. There is one God. We, we saw that, right? We saw that evidence. Line number two, there is plurality within the Godhead. We don't know what that plurality looks like and means. We don't have a full picture yet. We haven't added color yet. But we do know that the Old Testament begins to establish plurality within the Godhead. Now, New Testament comes along and begins to add a little bit of color to our picture. This is the fun part, right? The coloring part is always the fun part. And so I'm going I'm to jump through these first three colors really, really quickly here to get to the last two because it's critical. We'll go through five colors. Colors, it's a metaphor. Stick with me, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump through these, and I'm going to go through Scripture references very, very quickly. So don't try to write them down. I will tell you that if you want to write down these phrases and these assertions that the New Testament affirms, and then you go back and Google it, and say, give me a Bible reference for this, you'll get thousands, okay? Because they're all over the New Testament. Color number one, the Father is God. The Father is God. So so we've got there is one God that the Old Testament establishes, and, and we've got that there's plurality within the Godhead, and then the New Testament begins to establish that the Father is God. God is called Father in nearly every Old Testament book, or New Testament, New Testament book, all of John's writings, including his gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, 1st and 2nd Peter, Acts, Hebrews, Jude. Some of you may know that Jesus calls God his heavenly father all throughout the gospels. In the New Testament, the phrase, the God our Father, of, God and Father of our Lord Jesus, just that phrase is used in Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 1, 3 and 17, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, and 1 Peter 1. 
In short, color number one that the New Testament establishes is the Father is God. The Father is God. Color number two. The Son is God. The Son is God, or Jesus is God. Colossians 1.15 says that he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Not the stamp, but the original Greek word is the akon. He's the very being itself. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.19 says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Philippians 2 says that Jesus was in very nature God. Hebrews 1 says that he, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. I love this one. This is John 14. I love this example that, 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 that tells us that the Son is God. Because one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Philip, asks him a question. And, and, and he says to Jesus, he says, show us the Father. Jesus, show us the Father. Listen to how Jesus responds. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? <laughs> That's great. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak my own authority, but the Father dwells in me and does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. In other words, the New Testament affirms that the Son is God. We're starting to get a bigger picture, aren't we? We're starting to get a little bit of color. There is one God. There is plurality within the Godhead. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the third color is this. The Spirit is God. If you're taking notes, jot that down. The Spirit is God. Let me give you some evidence for the Spirit being God. Throughout the entire scripture, the Spirit is said to do the works that only God can do. Throughout scripture, the Spirit is said to do the works that only God can do. The Spirit is said to create, Genesis 1, Job 33, Psalm 104. The Spirit is said to expel demons, Matthew 12. The Spirit begot the Son of God, Matthew 1 and Luke 1. And the full divinity of the Son that we just established from Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 implies the full divinity of the begetter. The Spirit begets believers too. They are born of God, John 1, 12, and equally born of the Spirit, John 3, 5. The Spirit gives eternal life, John 6, 63. The Spirit sanctifies believers, makes people holy, Romans 15, 1 Peter 1. The Spirit enables people to enter the kingdom of God, John 3, 5, and on and on and on it goes. The Scripture affirms from tip to tail, from first page to last, that the Spirit does the works that only God can do. The Spirit is God. Now, this is where it gets fascinating. This is amazing to me. Color number four, the three are one. The three are one. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And in order to affirm monotheism from the Old Testament, and there is exactly one God, the New Testament affirms that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. The three are one. There are a lot of examples. I'm just going to give you one. It's from the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. Look what Jesus does. Jesus was smart, by the way. Real smart. Again, Jesus had a command of the language languages, plural, that he was speaking. In this particular case, watch what Jesus does in Matthew 28, 19. He says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now that's not 
I mean, that's all right. I mean, yeah, okay, good. Go make disciples. Okay, I got it. Watch what Jesus is doing. This is very, very clever. First thing I want you to see is all three persons of the Trinity. Do you see them? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. How many there? Three. With me? Come on now. How many are there? Okay. This word here, singular. The name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just as the Old Testament uses the word Elohim for God, plural, and attaches to it a singular verb, Jesus does the converse here. He takes name, singular, and attaches to it all three, plural, persons in the Trinity. Why? Because Jesus wants to affirm to his disciples and to you and me that the three are one. Understand me, that language, this choice to go singular and then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here would not have been lost on the disciples. That's not modern scholarship being anachronistic and reading modern times into the New Testament. That's not what's happening here. The disciples would have understood exactly what was going on here. Singular, the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Color number five, the three are distinct. The three are distinct. One God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to show you two places in the New Testament where all three members of the Trinity show up and are active in one specific circumstance together. This is fascinating to me. When Mary uh, was told by the angel Gabriel that she was pregnant with the Son of God, look what the angel tells her. This is great. He says, the Holy Spirit, that's one person of the Trinity, you with me? will come upon you and the power of the Most High, that's the Father, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's Jesus. All three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, present at conception of Jesus, each active, each distinct, each having a different role. The three are one, yet the three are distinct. Same thing happens at the baptism of Jesus. Watch it happen in the same way. It says when Jesus, this is Matthew Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus, here's the Son of God, person number 2 of the Trinity, was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, this would be the Father speaking, this is my, it's the Father speaking, beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you see all three members of the Trinity there? Father speaking, Son being baptized, and Spirit of God descending. The three are one, and yet the three are distinct. So by the time the scripture comes to a close, what's happened from tip to tail, from the Old Testament to the New, is that we've established there is one God, exactly one God. There is plurality within the Godhead, and the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. All three are God, the three are one, and the three are distinct. And so we're back to our very simple definition of the Trinity. One God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you understand this? Raise your hand. There you go. Look, okay. I don't, okay? I'll just tell you. Congratulations to you. Okay, because like this I get. Like I understand what these words mean. You know what I mean? Like I understand one, I know what I know what three is, I know what father son. I know I know what I know what this stuff means. But when you start to let your mind kind of play with this and go deeper and deeper into this concept of Trinity, let me assure you there will be a point where you get confused. 
There will be a point where you go, I don't get this. There will be a point where you go, man, that is beyond my ability to comprehend. And when you get to that point, you have two choices. One choice is just to worship a God whose ways are higher than your ways, whose thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Okay, who's different than you? That's choice number one. Here's choice number two. To make something up in order to like make it a little easier for you to understand. To come to this conclusion, this is temptation number two, come to this conclusion. I don't understand it, therefore it must not be true. I don't understand it, therefore it must not be true, and so I'm going to come up with a different explanation for it. You know, what's interesting about that statement is, is that it's got kind of a presupposition there that's a little bit difficult for me to believe. Here's the presupposition. I understand all things, and if I don't understand it, therefore it must not be true. Do you see it? If you understand all things, who does that make you? The triune God. That's what it makes you. And I'm pretty sure you're not him. And what's happened over the last 2,000 years of church history is that there have been individuals that have said, I don't understand how one God can be three distinct persons. I don't get that. So I'm going to come up with a new way to explain that. And that is called coloring outside the lines or heresy. I want to point out three unique ways that people have colored outside the lines because the Trinity is too great for them to comprehend. Okay, This is heresies, coloring, coloring outside the lines. The first is called modalism. Modalism. There's not a quiz after this. I'm going to fill in the blank. Okay, So modalism suggests this, that God is one God but exists in modes. Specifically, God exists in three different modes. So there's one God that shows up as Father sometimes. He shows up as Spirit sometimes. Or he shows up as Son sometimes. And I know that metaphors can be helpful when it comes to understanding deep biblical and theological concepts. Metaphors can be helpful sometimes. They can be instructive sometimes. But sometimes they can be dangerous. How many of you have been in church a long time and you've heard the metaphor that God, you know, the Trinity is like H2O that shows up sometimes as ice and sometimes as water and sometimes as steam depending on the circumstances. How many of you have ever heard that before? Yeah. Okay, that's modalism. That's what that is. That's heresy. Okay, no, I I get it. Sometimes it can be helpful. So I'm not like tossing this out completely. The baby with the (laughs) bathwater. Isn't that funny? I'm not tossing this out completely. I'm not saying it can't be helpful. What I'm saying is be very, very careful because modalism is a 2,000 year old heresy. It's coloring outside the lines. And you might be going, oh, it's 2,000 years old. It's not, it's not modest on a modern heresy. Really? Really? It's called oneness theology. It's there all over the place. It's out there in, in churches that are, that are people just tweaking it by a couple degrees, just by a couple degrees, but it's got destructive consequences long term. What about uh, the heresy called Arianism? Arianism, named after Arius, clever name. Arius was uh, a, a, a theologian, or at least a pseudo-theologian, around the 3rd, 4th century uh, after, after Jesus passed and, and, and rose again from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father to the glory of God. Amen. And, and Arius said, I don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand how there can be one God and three distinct persons, so Jesus must be a created being. 
Jesus must be a created being. He's not eternally preexistent. I would reject in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God from John chapter 1, verse 1. Arius says that's not true. Jesus was a created being. And the church councils of Nicaea and Constantinople categorically rejected Arius' claim and said that is coloring outside the lines. That is heresy. And again, you might not think that that exists still today. It's Jehovah's Witness position. That Jesus is a created being. It's not biblical theology. It's not historical theology. I don't have anything against Jehovah's Witnesses. I just don't. It's just not biblical theology. It's just not historical Christianity. It's just not, it's just not what that is. Third heresy, third coloring outside the lines is called tritheism. Tritheism says that there are three gods. It's not one God, not monotheism. Three distinct persons. It says that there are three different gods. Those three gods are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, you might not think that, that, you know, we just established there is one God, only one God. So tritheism doesn't work. Tritheism doesn't square with the biblical text. You might think to yourself, where does tritheism exist? It exists in the LDS church. It's a position of Mormonism. I mean, just little tweaks by a couple degrees, and it's a radical shift away from biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says one God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those heresies, along with others that reject Trinitarian theology, are coloring outside the lines. I want to do three quick applications for us of Trinitarian theology because I've heard it said before that theology matters for naught if it doesn't impact your life in the here and now. Just knowing stuff, I see some of you nodding your head, just knowing stuff is, is not worth squat. That and a nickel get you nothing, right? Uh, just knowing stuff doesn't help at all, but knowing and applying it. So how does Trinitarian theology impact my life in the here and now? First, it impacts the way I do community. It impacts the way I do community. Now listen, you got to stick with me because this is, this, is, this, is, this is beautiful. Honestly, if you think about this, this is beautiful. The Almighty God, eternally preexistent Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship with one another and continuing to be that way today. The Son glorifying the Father, the Father lifting up the Son, the Spirit being sent by the Son and the Father, the Son submitting to the will of the Father when he was on the earth, the, the community, the fellowship, the togetherness, the, the eternal blessedness of the Trinity in relationship with one another. And that God in Genesis 1.27 says, let us, plural, let us make man, that's you, and woman, that's also you, in our image. So when God, the triune God, three distinct persons, makes you and me in his own image, it by, very, uh, by its very necessity requires us to be in relationship with one another. You got it? It requires us to be in community. This is why our hearts long for fellowship and long for friendship. This is why we celebrate the beauty of marriages that last for 50, 60, 70 years. This is why we want to be together as a community. Not because it's just fun to be around people. Because that is God and that's how he created you. As Pastor Dave would have said last week, it's in your genes. That's who God is. He is, in essence, relational Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he created you in his image, he made you the same way. So when we stand up here on a Sunday and we say, you should get in a life group, it's not because like we were bored on Tuesday and decided to start a new church program. We're giving you the opportunity to live out the way that God has made you in his image and be in community. Number two, 
Trinitarian theology has implications for our salvation. Each member of the Trinity has a role in our salvation. Each person in the Trinity has a role in our salvation that requires that member to be, that person of the Trinity, to be God. Not just kind of God, not just sent from God, but God. The Father elects and sovereignly decides and sovereignly chooses to extend salvation to all. The Son is our redemptive sacrifice. The Son went to the cross as a human being in order to die for human beings, but the Son was God and thus can die for all human beings and all sin. If the Son was not God and cannot die for all human beings and cannot die for all your sin it's just a dice roll well maybe we got lucky maybe jesus is a good enough guy to go to the cross no 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 no. that's not how it works jesus is not just a good enough guy he is god thus he can die for you and the whole world and all of your sin the word of god says the spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance in christ all three persons in the trinity in our salvation, active and securing our salvation. And without Trinitarian theology, our salvation falls apart. Just a couple degrees off, right? Just a couple degrees from the start, Trinitarian theology, that's the start. And down the road, we've got destructive impact when our salvation falls apart. I don't like that. That's why I buy Trinitarian theology. Also because the Bible teaches it. Number three, one final application and then we'll be done. Trinitarian theology has implications for our worship has implications for the way that we worship. <laughs> let's, let's say it this way. I, I don't want to worship a God I can understand. Are you with me on that one? Like if I can understand him, that makes me greater than him. The Bible says that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. So far as the heavens are above the earth, So his thoughts are above our thoughts, his ways are above our ways. His wisdom no man can fathom. No one is given to him that he should repay. From him and to him and through him are all things. So when I come to the scripture and I read Trinitarian theology and I say that God is one and there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in its simplest form, okay, I understand what those words mean, but I cannot plumb those depths The further I go into Trinitarian theology, the more I'm humbled before a God who is bigger than me, who is smarter than me, who is different than me, who is greater than me. And it causes me to bow my knee in humble worship. I was reading uh, this past week a book called Knowing God by by, uh, J.I. Packer. My my copy is pretty worn here because I've been through it a number of times. And I was reading a quote that uh, Packer begins with by a young preacher named Charles Spurgeon, who I, who I really love. Um, he's been around a while, Spurgeon has. And he's got something to say about theology. He's got something to say about this Trinitarian theology. And he's got something to say about the way it impacts how we worship that triune God. I just want to read it to you. He said, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. Say it another way. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in doing rigorous theology. It's a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. 
Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and in them we feel a kind of self-content. And go away and think, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science of theology, Spurgeon writes, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a donkey's colt. Spurgeon's old school, 150 years old, he's like a wild ass's colt, is what Spurgeon writes. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. It is that triune God that we've come to worship today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and three distinct persons. As Melissa and George and Abby come to lead us in a song, Holy, 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 where we will sing about that triune God, would you stand with me as we pray and prepare our hearts to respond in worship of the triune God? Heavenly Father, we stand before you humbled at your majesty and might. Humbled that we could never plumb your depths. Humbled that we could never understand you. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways higher than our ways. So far are the heavens above the earth. Your thoughts are above our thoughts and your ways above our ways. Jesus, Son of God, we worship you as God. Our secure redeemer, our steadfast hope, our friend and confidant, our perfect high priest, becoming like us in every way so that you might be tempted in every way and understand that, and yet resisting temptation, being in very nature God, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but making yourself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness, humbling yourself to death, even death on a cross, and that now you are exalted. Now the Father has exalted you. And so at your name, Jesus, Son of God, God in flesh, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that you are Lord and God to the glory of God the Father. Spirit of God, we acknowledge you as God. We acknowledge you as our friend sent to convict the world of sin and guilt. We acknowledge you as our counselor, our helper, our keeper, paraclete in the Greek, Spirit, we acknowledge that you are fully God, not just a wisp of God or a sense of God, not an it, but a he, distinct person and fully God. Triune God, we worship you now, blessed Trinity. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Let's sing together. Mm -hmm.